Okay, it is Sunday, November 8th. Welcome to our Sheep Gate Fellowship Sunday service, wherever you are. I pray that God blesses you this day. Uh, and as we go into the reading of his word and study of his word, I pray that the Holy Spirit would inspire, convict, and transform your life as a result of it. So, if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 6. And I'm sure, again, this is just a story familiar with many of you uh, who have grown up in the church. Uh, this is the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes. There are two instances of Jesus feeding multitudes. There's one where he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, 3,000 men plus women and children. Today we are focusing on the narrative of John 6, uh, which is actually found in all of the Gospels. All four, all four Gospels record the feeding of the multitudes. And that's just how important this particular narrative is in our understanding and towards our faith. It teaches us an immense, immense truth that I will find, I hope you will find quite um, not only intricate and interesting, but convicting, uh, as it was for me this week. So, let's go to John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. This is the second sermon in our series on John. And as I mentioned last week, we are not going to so much focus on a narrative involved with the figure and character of John. A lot of these narratives we're going to look at are, are uh, John is actually omitted in the narrative. But we're looking at things that John has left us with to study, like the works of John, right? And so that's what we're doing this month with the Apostle John. So let's go to John 6, 1 to 15. I will read, and you can follow along in your own Bible. And this is what the Word of God reads. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number uh, about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Amen. The word of God. Um, a lot of connection, a lot of connective tissue to what we read last week in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Uh, so we're going to make those comparative and contrasting sort of uh, parallels to that, uh, to that particular narrative that we examined last week. So it's very, very connective from last week's sermon. Okay, Unreached People Group of the Day comes from the nation of Iran. Uh, there are about 1.247 million of these people in the world. They are called the Bakhtiari, and uh, we are praying for them because they are predominantly Muslims, and there are no Christians in this community. This people group is completely unreached. They live uh, in what would be sort of the eastern part of Iran, or sorry, the western part of Iran, um, and they live, I guess, in villages and very close to the border of Iran and Iraq. So we're going to pray for the Bakhtiari of Iran today. Over 1.2 million of them. Okay, brothers and sisters, lots to pray for in the world today. Um, I mean, obviously, we have a new president-elect. Um, lots to discuss there, obviously, but we don't have a 
So sermon is not about politics, right? Uh, but we want to pray. We want to pray for the future leadership of America, the United States of America in particular. We want to pray for strong leadership. And when we say strong, of course, that's a subjective term. And of course, it's being defined in various different ways. But we want to pray for Christian values. We want to pray for godly values. And we pray for biblical values to come forth and be present. Um, I mean, the entire nation is founded on the principles of Scripture. So we want to pray for the upholding of those things. Uh, we want to pray for the safety and security of all Americans amidst, uh, obviously, a very, very uh, tension-filled election process. And it is not over by any means, right? It is still ongoing. There's going to be a lot of legal battles uh, in the future. But we really want to pray for the church and Christians alike in the nation of the United States of America um, to not only be bold and uh, to be strong, uh, but to be peaceful and to be uh, foundational in the truth of Scripture and to teach it wisely in a season that clearly Americans need it most. So let's pray together for our brothers and sisters down south, um, and uh, we'll begin today. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for this beautiful day in the middle of, I guess, what was uh, a devastating snowstorm last Sunday, just a week ago. Today, we get this beautiful weather. We get, you know, sunny skies and blue uh sunny uh, weather and blue skies and just wonderful temperature to just enjoy one last time maybe before the winter comes so we just thank you for the gift of the weather today we thank you for the gift of the brothers and sisters the community of christ the body of christ that gathers today especially our church as we come together to worship would you be with us in the study and reading of your word help us uh, with the power of the holy spirit and the filling of the holy spirit in us uh, to hopefully be convicted and transformed by it we thank you, God, for um, the opportunity to pray for this group in around the Bakhtiari. We pray for the over 1.2 million of these people who are completely unreached. We pray for the gospel to reach them by means that only you know. We pray for Christians to reach out to them. We pray for Christians that we know are in underground churches in Iran and Iraq who are um, tirelessly and fearlessly worshiping you. We pray, God, that they will reach out to their brethren. We also pray, Lord Father, for our brothers and sisters down south in the United States of America. They just completed uh, their election, and uh, they have a new president-elect and a vice president-elect in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And no matter what we think of them, no matter what we view of them, and no matter how we uh, or how worried we may be or concerned we may be with uh, perhaps the direction that they may take the nation, we know that the ultimately, as much as the occupant of the White House changes, uh, every four years or every eight years, we know that the throne of heaven, the occupant of that throne, never changes. And so there is sovereignty and that there is a God working for the good of those who love him. And so Father, help us to have faith in you, to trust in you. And we pray for our brothers and sisters down south, especially the Christian community, that they would be uh, fearless, gospel-proclaiming um, Christians who uphold and continue to uphold and fight for uh, not only religious freedom, but for, uh, the but for the teachings of Scripture, uh, for the sanctity of life, and for the preservation of Christian value in society. We thank you so much for the Church of Christ, and we thank you for the leaders of the Church, and specifically we pray for the leadership of that nation. Thank you, all this we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, today's sermon is entitled, Feeding the Hungry. Feeding the Hungry. Just like last week when the Samaritan woman came to the well and she was seeking physical water, but walked away with living water, and we talked about the difference, uh, what that means, she walked away with something better. She walked with something that was eternal, not temporal. She walked away, or I should say ran away, really, into the city crying out, is this the Christ? She did this uh, unknowingly, right? She came to the well and spontaneously meets this Christ, 
and Jesus uh, shares the gospel essentially with her and she's completely convicted by this truth and this revelation of the Christ who has come and she goes out declaring it, dropping her water pot, dropping uh, everything and just going, right? And so today, maybe on the similar lines, here are these hungry people, perhaps seeking food. And Jesus initially draws the conversation, at least leads the conversation in the direction of physical food. But of course, ultimately, the plan was to not only feed these people physically, right? To not only satisfy our earthly temporal needs, but to help people recognize that there is something of a greater feeding to come, the feeding that comes only through Jesus Christ. The presentation and the revelation of the gospel and the execution of redemptive history for the sake and purposes of all souls who will come to believe in him, for the elect, for the God's people, uh, to have eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. Remember what I told you last week, John's thesis statement, John 20, 31, that all may know, all these things have been written for you that you may know uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? So again, that is our lens for today. John 6, 1 to 15, feeding the hungry. I love food. I'm sure you love food, right? Maybe you don't love food. I know Esley doesn't love food. But most of us, most of our church community anyways, loves food. We love eating. I love eating. You know what? You know how much I love food? I even love watching people eat food, right? You guys watch mukbang on, on YouTube or, or videos or whatever, right? It's hilarious and it's entertaining and it's somewhat satisfying to watch people eat food for some reason. Food is something that is naturally part of the human story. It's part of our connective tissue. It's part of our DNA, if I will. It brings family and friends and even strangers together. I remember going to the uh, Middle East for the first time, and one of the first things that the missionary there told me was, if someone offers you food, you have to eat it. You have to eat it. Why? Because that's how they commune. We commune over the dinner table. That's how we become friends. It's a sign of connection, of connectivity, even between two different strangers, to be able to share in this common trait of eating. It is a common language, if you will, and one that is so critical to cultures and cultural identity. We live in a world with a vast array of cuisines and flavors. People absolutely love food. It is no surprise to me that eating, if you will, was exactly what got us into the whole mess of sin to begin with. Eating got us into the mess, and here we have a sort of eating that gets us out of it. This is incredible how Jesus turns the table on eating, if you will. How sinister and villainous were those words when initially Satan said, did he really say not to eat, right? And we took and we ate. So we took and we ate what we wanted to eat. Here Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Stop taking and eating what you want to eat. Take what I give you and eat. See that subtle difference, how it has in incredible eternal ramifications? But fundamentally, food is an essential human need, right? We have various needs. Most of the things we so-called need are wants. But the essential needs of human life are what? Food, water, shelter. Shelter inclusive of clothing, right? Of some kind of way uh, of protecting ourselves. It fuels the body, right? Food is a fuel for the body. It fuels it with supplements, nutrients, and energy to continue functioning at our optimum, optimal levels. The lack of food, thus, can lead to exhaustion, pain, health deterioration, and even death. World hunger today is a major issue as there is a great need for sustenance, food, in many areas of the world. Here's an alarming stat. Some 795 million people in the world, 795 million people in the world do not have enough food to lead a healthy, active life. 
That's about one in nine people on the earth. The vast majority of the world's hungry people live in developing countries where 12.9% of the population is under mal undernourished or malnourished. At the same time, in countries like our own, Canada, United States, Korea, wherever, we waste an average of one-third of the food we have at our disposal. The amount of food waste produced annually by the G20 nations alone could theoretically, actually not theoretically, it has been proven, could solve world hunger. The United States has an annual uh, budget that could solve world, world hunger three times over every year. I'm not blaming the United States, okay? I just, I'm not saying like we're all being jerks here, okay? But here's the point I want to make. There is no lack of food in this world. There's a lack of distribution of that food. Right? In today's passage, we read of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus unnumbered women and children. And it is quite the feat and perhaps the reason why this story is so well known in so many congregations around the world. Now, at face value, just like the story we read last week with the Samaritan woman at the well, this is a story of Jesus' great compassion for the hungry crowd. And last week, it was a story of compassion for the Samaritan woman. And it seemed like last week, the story was going and heading towards, at least in the perspective of the Samaritan woman, Jesus is going to give me water, like physical water, that will quench my thirst forever so that I never have to come to this well again. But that wasn't the story, was it? And today, it may seem like, reading the text, it is a story of how miraculously Jesus is capable of multiplying matter into, uh, into a level that we can't even imagine. That people are not only satisfied, but there are leftovers from five loaves and two fish. 5,000 men plus women and children. So at face value, that may seem like the point of the story, a miracle of miracles, provision of food in a time of hunger and need. Now, like his first miracle in the Gospel of John, turning water into wine in the wedding in Cana, uh, when the wine ran out at the wedding party, it could seem like a story about Jesus just simply solving a problem using some spiritual magic powers. But no, of course not. There is far more to this story than what is the superficial. Jesus in chapters 4 and 5 of the Gospel of John has already been busy in the Galilean region, traveling, healing, tending to those in need. He has been targeted by religious leaders and has had to defend himself multiple times. He has been busy teaching and discipling those who are following him. And in chapter 5, we see a defense of his divinity and the truth of his nature as the Son of God. An appeal to the Old Testament and a challenge to read wisely and carefully, he says to them. And then he goes across the sea, the Sea of Galilee, the crowd behind him. He rests on top of a mountain or hill. Fitting that he would have this feast, this particular feeding of the multitudes, this feast for the many. It is fitting that he would have this meal on top of a mountain just as the city of Jerusalem in the horizon rests on top of a mountain itself. Where at this time of this story, another feast is about to happen on the temple and on that mountain, the Passover feast. And as you know, of course, if you're familiar with the Passover narrative, if you remember, is the celebration of the passing of the angel of death in the 10th plague against Egypt in Exodus, as only the households with the blood of the lamb, right, the slain lamb, the innocent lamb, blood painted on the doorframe, 
and on the doorpost, they would that household would escape the penalty of losing their firstborn son. Now, in remembrance of this, Moses is told to teach the Israelites in remembrance to remember this particular event in history of Jewish history, of Israelite history. Remember this event. Celebrate it. This is the Passover. So it's the passing over of the angel of death, right? It was customary. Here's D.A. Carson noting on this. It was customary. Uh, in his commentary, he notes on John. He writes, Intrinsic to the celebration was the slaughter of a lamb. Listen, intrinsic, so absolutely necessary, and a part of the component of celebration was the slaughtering of a lamb in each household, which then they would eat. In this gospel, Jesus, D.A. Carson writes, is the Lamb of God. So the Passover, in essence, is almost, not almost, I would say, is an absolute foreshadow of Christ's atonement on the cross for our sins. And it is appropriate that he has this feast during the Passover. And John marks very carefully all three Passovers that Jesus celebrates in the years of his ministry. That's why we say Jesus ministered for three years, because he celebrated three Passovers. And on that final one, you know what happens, right? That last Passover will be the night of his death. Those who eat of this lamb, this lamb of God, they will be saved. This seems to be John's underlying theological message and undertone. Now it's up to us as readers, as careful New Testament believers and readers to connect those dots from the Old to the New Testament. This is the second of three Passovers, as I mentioned, that Jesus partook in John's gospel. And in all three instances in John's gospel, Jesus or I should say John, who wrote this for that matter, is referencing his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God. We see in this text a few key lessons as follows. Recognize the need, point number one. Point number two, understand your resources. Point number three, Jesus is the provision. And point number four, there is no lack. So I'm going to look at four simple points today, and that'll be it. So read with me, verses 5 to 6. Point number one, recognize the need. Jesus and his disciples were resting and seemingly wanted some time in privacy, right? But a large crowd gathers and Jesus sees them. And his immediate response, however, at least in this gospel, particular gospel, is recognition of their hunger. Jesus wants to eat with these people as he has compassion over them, and he wants to provide for those people. But remember, the setting is incredible. It's a mountaintop. He's just finished crossing the sea, right? I mean, what, what, what image comes to your mind when you think of crossing the sea? The Exodus, right? So you've crossed the sea. You're on this mountaintop. You have multitudes who are hungry. Who was hungry in the wilderness and cried out for food to God? He said, Moses, Moses, give us food, for we are hungry. And what fell from the sky? Manna. And here is Jesus on the mountaintop. Where, was, where did Moses rest the Israelites and tell them to wait for the commandments? A mountain, Mount Sinai. And there's in the horizon again is the visible Mount Jerusalem, a temple where all these sacrifices are being made. All of these things culminate 
They sum up to this perfect scenario where Jesus is sitting on the mountaintop, his followers and the crowds are around him, his disciples are next to him, and they are waiting. And they're not seeking food, but Jesus recognizes their hunger, their need, their physical hunger. And he's compassion over them, and he wants to provide for these people. But he peculiarly turns towards an interesting person, if you will, for the resolution. He's like, oh, all these people are hungry. Philip. <laughs> Can you imagine being Philip that day? So you're, there you are, you're just a disciple of Jesus, and you're just on the mountaintop. Everyone's hungry. Jesus is like, oh, man, all these people are hungry. Philip. <laughs> you got food? <laughs> right? Okay, the reason he turns to Philip is because this is his hometown. This is Philip's hometown. And so he's asking Philip, hey, in your neighborhood, right, you know anywhere we can get some food to feed these people? Now, of course, John, John realizes this in hindsight. The point of this question was not to actually have Philip resolve the situation, but rather to draw their attention towards the issue. The issue is there is no food to feed these people. He's setting up the miracle. And he asked Philip, how can these people be fed? Now, Philip, was, in hindsight, if he was the New Testament Philip, or sorry, if he was the Acts Philip, he would have said, oh, Jesus, nah, very funny. You feed them. I know you can feed them. Right? That's what he was saying. But at this moment, he doesn't really understand who Jesus is. He doesn't understand what is being set up here. Many times, God asks questions. In fact, God always asks questions because he knows everything that he already knows the answer to, right? But it's used... Uh, and this is used in rabbinic methods, and it's used today. Think about your lectures. Think about your high school lessons. Think about all those things. Does the teacher not know the answer to two times two when she writes it or he writes it on the chalkboard? They know the answer. Why do they ask you for the answer? Because the point of learning, the point of education, and the method by which we learn and grow and come to understand fundamental truths is not by just being given the answer and being told, Two times two is four. Just know that. You're good. No. The purpose is to know the function of what multiplication is. The purpose is to know that the variables of two and two can change infinitely, but the function of that multiplier, multiplication, that X in the middle between the two and two, will always have the same function. So the purpose is for you to learn what that multiplier does, not for you to know two times two equals four. That just blew your world away, right? Like, think about all your lectures, any class you've taken. The teachers just go up and lecture for two hours telling you answers? No, they go up to the chalkboard or the whiteboard or whatever digital board they have today, and they ask you questions to make you think, even though they know the answer. And here's Jesus exercising that powerful teaching method. Philip, how can these people be fed? It's not so much out of actual curiosity or inquiry. He is teaching his disciples in that moment. Will you recognize who the provider is? I am reminded of when Adam first sinned. And he went into hiding behind a bush. And God asks, he comes down to the garden. And he asks, Adam, where are you? As if he doesn't know. Or when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? It is no surprise that our modern educational system uses the same method to teach. Teachers ask questions all the time to their students that they already know the answer to in hopes of what? Drawing out the correct answer. 
Philip, like us today, should look to the hungry and the ones in need and realize immediately the immense lack can only be met and satisfied by Jesus Christ. The physically hungry of this passage are like that of the spiritually deprived in the world today. World hunger is a major issue, but global sin is a greater one. Recognize the need. Point number two, understand your resources. Verses seven to nine. Philip takes Jesus' inquiry, literally, and he counts the mouths to feed. He says, there's 5,000 men here. How could we possibly feed these people? And the bread that would be needed to feed them all, not, I can't even fathom how much money we would need to purchase that bread. Not only that, the cost of this bread would just be immense beyond our possible, like any sort of financial possibility that we have. And what bakery could I possibly find that would even be able to bake this much bread for these people? The logistics prove the situation to be unsolvable. 200 denarii, he says, was about... He says 200 denarii would not be enough. 200 denarii was about eight months' wage, and even that would not suffice. How can Jesus ask, dare I say, such a stupid question? Does he seriously think we can feed all these people? By all accounts, Philip is being reasonable, rational, and totally careful in his analysis of the situation at hand, right? Well, then Andrew comes, and he identifies the possession of five loaves and two fish. Now, if I was that little boy that day, I just got my lunch stolen by Jesus, right? <laughs> you have five loaves and two fish. I'm curious why no one else had any food. Why just this one boy who had five loaves and two fish? Anyways, he did. And Andrew finds him and he's like, hey kid, follow me, I want your food, right? As if that would even help. Like Andrew's like, oh, Philip, you failure. Let me help out. I got five loaves and two fish. 5,000 people, five loaves, two fish. Unless these loaves are the size of school buses and these fish are basically giant whales. This is not feeding these people. Right? First of all, does this boy even want to give you his meal? Did you ask him? I'm just kidding. Oh, this disciples the first lunchtime bullies recorded. Just kidding again. Okay, real point. What kind of boy eats five loaves of bread and two fish by himself? I'm just kidding. That's the third joke that I'm going to make. That's the last joke. That's way too much for this kid. Anyways, the real question. Does Andrew seriously think this will help? That's my question. Does he really think this will help? Unless those loaves of fish and those things are just immense size is not going to help and even then it wouldn't be enough so this is just andrew's just piling on to the problem but there's one resource we're forgetting right you have five loaves two fish five thousand mouths to feed how do we do this well jesus is right there remember in the boat when jesus falls asleep and the storm comes and peter's like teacher teacher do you do you not care for us do you want us to die and jesus wakes up and he's like i'm paraphrasing Reading between the lines here, okay? This is my message Bible version, okay? <laughs> you moron. <laughs> Do you not know who I am, right? Like, I can tell the storm to calm down. So he gets up, he's like, calm down, right? Brothers and sisters, in the midst of the storms of our life, in the midst of the greatest moments of our lacking in need, in our most terrible of situations, you know what we forget first? Jesus. 
We, could, we put a blind eye to Jesus. As soon as something crappy happens, as soon as something we feel like the worst situation we could possibly be in, we lose something, someone we love dies, something terrible happens, a car crash, this, that, whatever. The first thing we throw out the window is that Jesus is there with us. Mouths to feed, very little food, Jesus Sorry, Jesus, you can't help with this. Creator and Master and Lord of the universe is in front of you. Is he not? Or maybe it is that you are the resource that God wants to use to fulfill this task. Maybe you're part of the equation. We're looking at this very incorrectly, I think. What you have or what you don't have, for that matter, is of no logistical importance. In the hands of the Son of God, to resolve any seemingly insurmountable feat. What would be more astonishing is if Jesus could not feed 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. That would be more astonishing than what he did today. Brothers and sisters, understand your resources or more precisely understand who Jesus is and what your life can be in his hands. As a resource to him, which leads me to my next point. Jesus is the provision. He is the provision and the provider simultaneously at the same time, right? Not only is he the sacrifice, but he is also the one taking on the wrath. He is the savior, but he's also the sacrifice. That's incredible. That's something that just was completely amiss to these people. They could not fathom that the solution to sin was God's son dying on the cross taking on the wrath of God himself. So third point, Jesus is the provision, verses 10 to 12. In verses 10 to 12, Jesus sits the crowd down. He takes the food. He gives thanks to God, and he begins to break it. It is then distributed by the disciples. From the other gospels, we know this because the disciples were asked to do so. And then the leftovers are collected, and nothing would go to waste. Also, so that all could see that the multiplication of the initial five loaves and two fish we want you to see how incredible this multiplication process was. And so we have 12 loaves and five, and we have 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus takes the food, he's breaking the food apart. Can you imagine? Think about this for a moment. We have very little food, a lot of mouths to feed. What's the last thing you want to do? Break the food apart. Like he's not going atom by atom, making 5,000 atoms of bread, right? So here's a crumb for you, here's a crumb for you. <laughs> Clearly these people are satisfied. Breaking the food apart seems like the wrong thing to do in a situation like this. But remember that in the next Passover, on the night of his arrest and death, Christ will be sitting with his disciples, ready to eat. And he will take bread. And on that day, he again will break it. And he will tell his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. If you look just at verse 35 of this very same chapter, chapter 6, 
we see Christ refer to himself as the bread of life. Let's read it together. John 6, verse 35. Look what it says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Where have we heard these words before? In John 4 last week, my water is living water. Those who drink of it, a well, a spring will just come up out of them, flowing, overflowing, just like this bread, and you will have eternal life. Right? Those who eat of this bread, the bread of Christ, will have life. It is the bread of life. And this is what we do in communion. We remember this, right? Now, of course, John doesn't make any clear connections to the Eucharist or the communion in this passage. So I'm not trying to draw that connection. But I think it certainly stirs that imagery, right? But the imagery, of course, um, not only is it connective and easily drawn out, there's a really clear indicator of a somewhat of a loose connection here, okay? And it's the Greek word for Jesus took the bread and gave thanks. You know what the word gave thanks is in Greek? It's eucharistesos, root word eucharist. When we have the communion, the reason we call it the Eucharist is we give thanks in remembrance of Christ, breaking his body, pouring his blood on our behalf. That is the Eucharist. That is the communion. And what is ever more clear is that John is emphasizing the abundance of provision through Jesus and the total satisfaction, the total satisfaction of all who are hungry. Christ is the provision of God as the resolution to our greatest need, and he will satisfy abundantly all those who eat his bread, for they will be fed to the fullest. Like manna that fell from the sky to feed the desert Israelites, God sent his son that he may feed us life, and it will be full and abundant. It is more than enough. The final point, verse 13, there is no lack in Jesus there is no lack. Twelve baskets remain full after the feast. Just like every day when the manna fell, what did the Israelites do? In their greed, they were like, uh, I'm going to take a little bit more just in case, right? But what did God say? What did Moses teach them to say? He said, don't only take for that day. Tomorrow more manna will come. But in our greed and in our faithlessness, we are constantly, constantly focused on the now, the present. We're just we just want to grab for ourselves and store up for ourselves, right? We don't trust God enough to provide for us every day. But there is no lack in Jesus Christ. Maybe there were 12 baskets left over so that the disciples would not fight over the baskets that are left over. So all 12 of them get one basket each. I don't know. Maybe it was just wise that way. But what began in Jesus' hands as so little, listen to this, what began so little in his hands, what seemed so tiny in his hands, five loaves, two fish, 5,000 mouths to feed, in his hands became so much. So much. Christ sees our need. He provides what we need. He gives abundantly, more than we, more than we deserve. And will ever deserve. For those that put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, 
brothers and sisters, it may feel like there is lacking, but there is no lack. There's nothing you lack of importance. The Apostle Paul will later proclaim to live as Christ, to die as gain. So here's a couple questions maybe to just help you ponder a couple things today. Are you satisfied? Are you full? And clearly I'm not talking about your physical hunger because I'm sure a lot of you are hungry. If you've come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and have placed faith in Him as your Savior and Lord, I echo to you the words of the psalmist, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Here's a couple other versions of that verse in other English translations. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. You have no lack in your life. No. Nothing. If you have Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, you have no lack. You have all you need in Jesus Christ. The 12 baskets of bread and the extra, the multiplication of food and the provision of this stuff, that's secondary to the hands that are breaking that bread on your behalf. It's secondary. This is why when we teach and preach the gospel, we cannot tell people or should not tell people you, you can go to heaven. You can go to heaven. You can go to heaven. These are the benefits of faith. Right? We can't keep telling people the benefits. This is what marketers do. Right? Any commercial you watch, what do they tell you? Have you ever watched a Lotto 649 commercial? What do they tell you? You could have a house this big. You could live a life like living on the, like the dream life. You could have this. You could have that. The gospel begins with this. You don't deserve anything. You're pretty worthless on your own. You're a sinful creature damned to hell. Come to Jesus. For there is no lack in him. The tainted life you live will be redeemed. Right? A lot of times we focus so much on the benefits and we forget who is actually providing them. Right? We need to draw our focus back to that. I, you have no idea how many believers, okay, I was just going to air quote it, okay, believers that I've met, right, especially when I was working on campus, I asked them, are you Christians? They would say yes. And I said, why? Why, are you, why, why did you, how and why did you come to faith? Share your testimony with me. And almost like more than half the time, it was, I don't want to go to hell. I'm scared to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want that security, but I don't want to live it out as a reality. Right? So brothers and sisters, the Lord is a shepherd, shall not want. There is no lack in Christ. So four points. Let me just reiterate them. Recognize the need. Understand your resources. Jesus is the provision and the provider. There is no lack in him. So what is our response to all this? What's our response to the text today? I looked at the disciples in the story. My conclusion is this. There's a major issue in the world called sin. 
here's another amazing stat for you. Earlier, I gave you this whole 795 million people who are dying of world hunger or are malnourished, right? Here's another amazing stat for you. This is crazy. This is fact check too, so you can fact check me on this, okay? Another amazing stat. 100% of the world is sinful. There are currently 11,260 people groups on planet Earth. There are about 6,534 that are considered unreached. Unreached meaning they don't have the means uh, to uh, have access to a Christian or a church. So in the community that they live, in the people group that they live, they cannot in their lifetime encounter a Christian without moving away. So that's an unreached people group, right? There is a crowd, hence, in need of feeding. The church has enough people, clearly, and physical resources to reach every person within our lifetime. Here's another crazy statistic. If every so-called Christian, self-professing Christian, if every Christian donated $5 a year, okay, I should be clear, five US dollars, not Canadian dollars, five US dollars a year to global missions, any missions of your choice, $5 a year, if every Christian did this, you know how much money we would have? I don't know the exact value, but I know we would have more than enough money to, to basically fund every missionary out there today in unreached people groups. $5 a year, think about that. How are you spending your resources? There is, brothers and sisters, no lack of the gospel, clearly. There is no lack of Christians in this world, clearly. There is no lack of resources available to those Christians, clearly. And there is no lack of accessibility. We have transportation, we have the internet, we have all these technological advancements that have made the possibility of reaching every human on earth absolutely possible. There is no lack in any way of these things. Like Paul could say like, oh, I want to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world, but he doesn't have the technological means to do that in his lifetime. You can talk about all the missionaries of our past time who wanted to reach the ends of the ends of the world. In the time that, you know, Hudson Taylor was taking a boat to China, in those months that he was sailing across the ocean, in our lifetime, we could fly to China and preach the gospel to hundreds, if not thousands of people in the time that he's just sailing there. There's no lack of any of this. No lack of gospel, no lack of Christians, no lack of resources, no lack of money, no lack of transportation, no lack of accessibility or anything like that. And don't give me this garbage of, oh, we can't go to North Korea. You have a Canadian passport. You can access North Korea. You can access Saudi Arabia. You can go to any of these countries. Here's the real lack. Your care. Your heart. And that ultimately leads to the same issue that we have with food. We have a lack of distribution. Right? That's it. I think it's beautiful that Jesus breaks this bread. Instead of him walking around and going, bread for you, fish for you, bread for you, and fish for you. Bread for you, but no fish for you. <laughs> you need a little bit of diet. Okay, low carb, here's just fish. Right? He doesn't do that. He gives it to his disciples. And he says, go and give them food. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to leave you with that. 
made me think this week. It made me really deeply think about where my heart was. So let's pray. Let's reflect on what we've learned today. And I hope that it will convict you of some important things in regards to our faith. Let us pray.